Well, hey, uh, good evening. Welcome to Fathom Academy Christian Theology uh, online, actually. So uh, this is our first time doing a Fathom Academy class with this uh, sort of vibe, doing this all online. Uh, obviously, we are being pushed online uh, because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, we would much prefer being in the same room together, actually having dialogues live. But uh, alas, this is the season that we are in. And But, but we believe that uh, the Lord uh, wants to use this well. My, my friend uh, Ryan Tafalowski, uh, who is an instructor at Denver Seminary, uh, an elder at his own church, my college roommate. I mean, goodness, we go way back. We love this. Uh, he and his family, uh, they're close friends. He's preached here at Fathom. We're looking forward to him teaching this class. So uh, this is going to be a little different. If you are watching this as we are streaming this, you're not backlogging and watching it. But if you're watching it kind of as we as we air this, as it were, uh, you'll see that there's a chat room. Uh, and I'm I am currently monitoring that chat room. Uh, I'd love for you to to jump in there, add some questions, uh, comments. Uh, if you want to dialogue more about stuff. Unfortunately, Ryan is unable to be with us tonight in that chat room as uh, his church is actually filming their Sunday on Thursday. Uh, so he's uh, filming for his church right now where he is an elder. So we're going to we're going to uh, do something a little different. We'll take those questions. We'll take those comments. And uh, we Ryan and I will kind of circle the wagons every few weeks. And our, our goal will be to kind of do a sit down. He and I and a couple of stools up here will shoot an, an additional video that's kind of like bonus content uh, that we will uh, try and do a little bit of conversation around your questions and your comments. So I would just in, 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 that to you. Please jump in that conversation. If you have a, a, a private conversation that you'd like to have, I can kind of do a private chat with you. Uh, there's just lots of ways that we can uh, engage in this material together. So uh, thanks for joining us. This is week one of this 12-week uh, teaching series from Ryan. Uh, the, the first week, as we talk about kind of the broader doctrine of God, we're going to drill into uh, what's known as the triune God, the Trinity, uh, which is a complex complex and kind of mind melting. Like if you're, if your brain starts to drip out of your ear a little bit during this, that's okay. It's totally normal. Uh, maybe, maybe consider calling an ambulance, but, uh, but, but aside from that, this is going to be a rich, uh, hour together. So, uh, I, I do want to pray for our time and then we will get into this with Ryan. So let's pray together. Father, uh, we do bless you this evening. We thank you for the gift that it is to, to study you, to, to, to do theology, to think on who you are and what you are like. And so uh, tonight I am thankful for my brother Ryan. I'm thankful for our time together as we get to study the doctrine of the Trinity. Lord, deepen us in our minds, deepen us in our intellects. Lord, as we know you more, may it turn our hearts to worship you all the more in our hearts. Lord, we love you. We bless you tonight in, in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good evening, uh, brothers and sisters, and welcome to Fathom Academy. Uh, as Chris said in our introduction, it is, uh, like everything else, uh, Fathom Academy has been a little bit disrupted uh, by the COVID-19 pandemic, so we're having to do these uh, digitally, which is uh, disappointing, but I'm grateful that we can do it. Uh, and uh, by now, actually, I'm getting a lot of practice speaking to an empty room, and I'm getting a little bit better at it. But even when I have students in the classroom, when I start talking about the Trinity, their eyes glaze over, and it feels like I'm all by myself anyway. So it won't be that big of a change. 
and so, as Chris mentioned, we are diving straight in with perhaps the most difficult material that we cover in, in this entire course, and that's the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, but the reason we start here, and I'll say more about this in a moment, is that the, the doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all other Christian thinking, because it is the most important and most foundational thing that Christians confess about God. So we don't happen to worship a God uh, who just sort of incidentally is triune. We worship the triune God. And as I'll hope to make clear, uh, that uh, shapes everything else that we do. And so here in this first slide, I've given you a, a quote from Augustine of Hippo. That's a name many of you will know. Uh, one of the most important theologians ever writing in the fifth century. Uh, and he wrote a book on the Trinity. And he said, in no other doctrine is error more dangerous, the research more laborious, and the discovery of the truth more rewarding. So what he means is there's a lot at stake when we talk about the Trinity, because if we go wrong, uh, the entire economy of salvation falls apart. And what I mean by that is uh, the, the belief in the Trinity is actually central to our understanding of the gospel because it is the Father who sends the Son, who then gifts the Spirit so that we can share in the life of God. Uh, the research is laborious because, as we're going to see, uh, some of the thinking around the Trinity that we have to do is very, very difficult. And so uh, if you've got uh, aspirin handy, I, <laughs> I might advise taking a couple uh, in anticipation of the migraine that we're going to get, trying to think about the Trinity together. Uh, and then he says, but finally, with the doctrine of the Trinity, the, the discovery of the truth is the most rewarding, because hopefully, as we come to understand uh, what it means to confess that God is triune, uh, we will uh, discover something of the depth and the grandeur of God, the God who delights in relationship and welcomes us to take a share into the triune life. And uh, that's something we'll be talking about as the course unfolds. Uh, by way of introduction, I want to give you a little quotation here from a, a theologian by the name of Kevin Van Hooser. Right? And he says this, he says, the Trinity is not merely the appendix to the doctrine of God, but the primary and distinctive way in which Christians should think about God. Now, He's got something very particular in mind here. When he says the Trinity is not an appendix to the doctrine of God, he is referring to a, a very specific period in the history of doctrine in which uh, after the Enlightenment, after uh, people started wanting rational proofs for Christian doctrines, some theologians got a little bit embarrassed by the Trinity because it's hard to make sense of logically. I mean, think about the math. It doesn't quite work. One plus one plus one equals one. That's very confusing to us. And so some theologians kind of said, oh yeah, well, we happen to believe in the Trinity, but uh, we're going to tack it on at the end as an appendix. But he says, actually, that order is completely wrong. Uh, the fact that God is triune is the very first thing Christians ought to be saying about God because it shapes everything else, as I've already said. And the, the title of Van Hooser's essay is interesting here. It says, the triune God of the gospel and what he means is that we cannot make sense of the gospel without an understanding of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what we're going to do this evening is discuss the doctrine of the Trinity in four parts. Now, in part one, I'm going to give you a very brief introduction to theology as a discipline. Now, uh, I recognize that some of you will come to the table with a lot of theological uh, knowledge. Some of this uh, material might be newer to others of you. And so all I want to do here is introduce some very basic vocabulary that we're going to be using again and again and again. 
throughout these series of talks, and which will set the stage for our approach to the doctrine of the Trinity. And so not only will I be introducing some basic vocabulary, I will also be uh, saying a few words about what our posture should be as human beings who are coming to approach the study of God, which is actually a really frightening thought if we think about it for just a second. In part two, we're going to talk a little bit about the biblical basis for the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, what's interesting about the word Trinity is, as some of you may know, it it does not appear anywhere in the Bible. And nowhere in the Bible do we actually get a very clear formulation of the doctrine of the Trinity. God never says to Moses, I am the triune God who exists uh, as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, It's never made that clear in the Bible. And yet, as I'll hope to show, the Bible very clearly kind of is the story of the unfolding of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In part three, we'll talk a little bit about the historical development of the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, because uh, as we're going to see, theologians had to take those biblical materials that seem to testify at the same time that God is one, and then also God is exists in three persons, and they had to try to formulate doctrines that express that coherently, which was actually very, very difficult. Uh, And so, and then we'll culminate uh, with a little bit of discussion on the doctrinal formulation as it came to crystallize in the church's tradition. So first though, a little bit by way of introduction, uh, the first place to start when we come to study God is by saying nothing at all which maybe seems a little bit counterintuitive. But what I mean is, if we're going to study God faithfully, we need to recognize uh, that as Solomon puts it in Ecclesiastes, that we are on earth and God is in heaven, so our words ought to be few. Meaning that when we speak about God, we're speaking about something that is utterly beyond our comprehension. Okay? And I want to introduce just a series of biblical texts to you here. Uh, that kind of expressed this point. Number one, Deuteronomy 4 and 5. This is the narrative of the people of Israel. They've just been released uh, from slavery in Egypt, and they're approaching Mount Sinai, where God is dwelling at the top, and where Moses will go to receive the law. And in these passages, we get a very terrifying image of God. He's presented as kind of a thunderstorm that is raging on the top of this mountain. And as it says in Deuteronomy, where God dwells, the place where he is, is wrapped in darkness, in clouds, and in doom. In 1 John, uh, the apostle says that no one has ever seen God. That's an interesting thing to say, since John was one of the apostles who actually walked with Jesus. And listen to this. this. Paul says this in 1 Timothy, the King of kings and the Lord of lords dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. And the point here is that I'm just trying to make broadly with these three, pas- three, these three uh, passages is that God is not like other objects in our universe. We can't go and we can't pick him up and inspect him and measure him and evaluate him. God is not such that a human being can just walk right up to him. This is what theologians mean when they talk about God's transcendence. He is totally different from us. He is totally beyond us. 
Now, of course, that's not the end of the story because God has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that in due course. But I just want to get the right heart posture. A good theologian approaches the task from a place of humility because we recognize our place before God and recognize that in, because of his incomparable holiness, he dwells in a light that no one can ever approach. Okay? Very, very important that we understand this. And so uh, a second point that we need to make is that all theology is done because of God's self-revelation to us. So we cannot understand the theological task as us using our powers of human reason to sort of decipher and discern what God is like. The Bible is absolutely clear that that's a dead end. And uh, revelation is necessary, if I can put it like this, because only God speaks truthfully of God. In Romans, Paul says that all men, all people are liars, but let God be true. Uh, So when we try to think about God under our own power, we invent lies, we invent false gods. So God speaks truthfully of God by coming to us in revelation. And there are different species of revelation. Uh, God reveals himself, for instance, in the created order, so that when you look at the grandeur of the mountains, for instance, you learn something about God's power and his beauty. But uh, I think more importantly, God discloses himself uh, through his acts in history and the scriptures that testify to those acts. So the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament, right? Those are God's self-revelation, but God's ultimate self-revelation is in the person of Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about that at length later on in our time together. So to kind of drive home this point, I want to give you a quote here from this guy. Uh, This is a a fellow named Herman Bovink, who is a 19th century Dutch theologian. Uh, who's got some interesting things to say about the mystery of God. Listen to what he says. Mystery is the lifeblood of dogmatics. Now that's sort of a fancy word for theology. We'll define it just in a moment. Mystery is the lifeblood of dogmatics. God can be apprehended. He cannot be comprehended. Now that's a very important distinction. All right. When we talk about apprehending something, we mean that we get it. You know, we, we catch a piece of it. But when we talk about comprehensive knowledge, we're talking about all-encompassing, total, thorough understanding of something. And Bavink is saying, you can apprehend God, you can catch bits of it, you can learn a little bit what he's like, and you can learn uh, genuinely and truthfully what he's like, but you will never understand what God is completely like. You will never come to a comprehensive understanding of God Uh, As Augustine, who we've already met, says in one of his sermons, he says, if you have understood it, it is not God. So Bobbing goes on to say, there is some knowledge, but not a thorough grasp of God. This is how the case is put throughout all of scripture and all of theology. And when a shallow rationalism considered a fully adequate knowledge of God a possibility, Christian theology always opposed the idea in the strongest Terms. So Bob Inc. is trying to get us to understand that if we think by the end of these 12 weeks, we're going to get a handle on God, uh, we've got another thing coming, right? Uh, we must always have a posture of humility before the mystery of God who can be apprehended, but not comprehended. I want to just give you a little bit uh, of a crash course on some of the basic uh, theological vocabulary that we'll encounter throughout uh, our talks together, just so you have a sense of what these words mean. When we talk about theology, the word itself, uh, etymologically speaking, uh, just comes from two Greek words smashed together, theos, 
which is the Greek word for God. Now, this does not necessarily mean the Christian God. This Greek word just means God in a generic sense. So uh, speaking very broadly, anyone who thinks or speaks about any kind of God is doing theology. So uh, this is not exclusive to Christian theology. There's, for instance, Islamic theology and there's Jewish theology. Uh, it just means theos, uh, generic, God, theos, and logos. Now that word logos is a little bit uh, more interesting because it's got a wide range of meaning. Uh, but roughly, logos means discourse about something, orderly, coherent conversation about something. So in the broadest possible sense, when we talk about theology, we're talking about God talk, right? And so on this level, anyone who thinks or talks about God is a theologian. So the question is not whether we're doing theology or whether we will do it, but whether we will do it uh, properly, uh, reverently, in ways that are helpful, or whether we'll do it recklessly in ways that are harmful, right? That's what this is all about. Now, uh, the word theology itself has a very broad range of meanings, uh, ranging from the very narrow, uh, what is sometimes by theologians called theology proper. And this is the doctrine of God the Father, right? And that's what we're going to be doing uh, roughly for this talk and for our next one when we talk about the attributes of God. It's got a broader meaning. Uh, and here I'm going to borrow a definition of theology from the 13th century theologian Thomas Aquinas, uh, which is a name that some of you may know. Uh, and Aquinas says that theology is the study of God and everything sub ratione dei, which is Latin for God and everything else in relationship to God. So uh, that's a very helpful definition because uh, a good theologian learns to interpret every other kind of experience and every other kind of knowledge through a theological lens. And so that's what we're going to be doing later on in the course, for instance, when we talk about, oh, the doctrine of human being. We're going to be asking the question, how should we understand ourselves as human beings in relationship to God? Because Christian faith has always held that that, that is the only way that we're ever going to understand ourselves is in relationship to God. Another way we might understand the doctrine, uh, the discipline of theology is by calling it theologic, right? That word logos is hard to translate into English, and we run into it in the prologue of John's gospel. And we usually translate it as word, right? In your English Bibles, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now that's weird. Has it ever struck you how strange that is? We don't talk like that. You read John's gospel. In the beginning is the word. What on earth does that mean? Well, that English word, word, is translating the Greek word logos. Okay? And logos is a concept that John borrowed from Greek philosophy. And what it means is essentially the organizing rational principle that is at the heart of everything and by which everything else makes sense. It's sort of a universal rationality that is built into the fabric of the universe, at least in ancient Greek philosophy. Uh, but you can see why English translators went with word there, because somehow in the beginning was the universal principle of divine rationality that undergirds everything doesn't quite have the same ring to it, right? But basically what John is trying to say here is that we all have this sense that there is something at the center of reality holding it all together. And for John and for the other New Testament writers, he says, uh, the logic that is holding the universe together, make, that makes everything make sense, is not some sort of abstract principle of reason. It is a person and it is Jesus Christ. Right? Paul makes the same argument, for instance, in Colossians 1, where he, he says that in him, in Jesus, 
all things hold together. So on one level, theology is trying to learn how to think with that theologic, where we're not the center of the universe, but God is at the center of reality. And that requires us to radically reorient the way that we understand the world because God is at the center of the frame and not anything else. So it's learning, in, uh, if I could put it this way, to think by a new logic where God is at the center. So theology, again, means uh, that it's not just a, a sort of arid intellectual enterprise, but it involves our whole being, our desires, uh, our beliefs, uh, our ethics, right? So the way we behave, the way we think, the way we feel, all of that ought to be transformed by the study of theology. Uh, and then very briefly here, uh, we don't have a lot of time to go into this uh, in great detail, but I want to introduce you to historically the four sources that we draw on to make theological claims. Uh, this is sometimes called the Wesleyan quadrilateral because it was formulated by uh, a theologian named John Wesley, who is the, the father of Methodism. Maybe you've heard that name before. And he says, basically, there's four sources that we draw on uh, to, to do the work of theology. Number one is scripture. This is very important for us as Protestants, evangelical Protestants in particular, the primacy of scripture. So everything that we say about God ought to be able to pass muster when we test it against God's self-revelation to us in Scripture. So if we have a doctrine that can't really justify itself scripturally, uh, maybe it's time to revise it, right? A second is tradition. Now, this word sometimes makes Protestants nervous uh, because we'd say, oh, well, the church's traditions uh, don't matter. What matters is the Bible. But what we need to understand here is that tradition is absolutely uh, indispensable in helping us to read the Bible. Every one of us reads the Bible within a context, uh, and a context that has been delivered to us by the traditions of the church. And so uh, there simply is no, no such thing as reading the Bible in a vacuum without a tradition. We all bring a tradition to the text with us. And in fact, when we read the Bible in ways that are really inconsistent with the broad Christian tradition, we usually run into trouble. My wife and I just uh, finished watching the miniseries on Netflix, Waco. I don't know how many of you guys watched that. Uh, but uh, if you know anything about the Branch Davidians, this sort of fringe Christian sect that was uh, hiding out in this compound outside of Waco, Texas, their leader, David Koresh, came, came around and he opened up the Bible and he gave bizarre interpretations, particularly of the book of Revelation, that no one in the history of the church had ever given before. And so if you go to a Bible study and your leader introduces a, a reading of the Bible that no one's ever heard before, they are either the most brilliant exegete in the history of the world, or they're a heretic. It's usually the latter, right? And tradition is important because it helps us uh, keep our reading of scripture in bounds, right? Probably you've all had the experience of going to a Bible study and someone says, well, what does this verse mean to, to you? And then someone says, well, what this verse means to me is, and then they say something totally insane right? That's why tradition is important. Number three, reason, right? Uh, the Christian tradition has always suggested that human beings are gifted by God with tremendous powers of reason. Now, of course, we're going to talk about this when we talk about the doctrine of sin. Those powers of reason have been diminished and distorted and twisted by sin. So I am not saying that you can just purely trust your rational thought, but one of the ways that we do the work of theology is uh, is asking, does this doctrine sort of make sense? 
on the most basic level. Does it make sense? Now, uh, this can't be the final criterion or the only criterion because some of the, some of the doctrines of the Christian faith uh, actually challenge us to evaluate what is possible, what we think is reasonable. The resurrection of Jesus is a good example. And the last one is experience. And there's a reason that Wesley put it last because experience can be a little bit slippery. Uh, for instance, if we use experience as our only criterion uh, for doing theology, we're going to end up in some pretty zany places because, uh, because nobody can, can judge your experiences. Nobody can tell you that you don't feel something, right? If Chris and I, your, your pastor went to Christian college, uh, and so we're familiar with this. If you went to Christian college, there's like a 50-50 chance that you either dumped someone or got dumped because Jesus was leading you to, right? You felt it in your experience. The problem with that kind of claim is it's not uh, falsifiable or verifiable. There's no way of knowing if it's true. Uh, with that said, our emotions can be a helpful guide in doing theology. But I would offer to this word of caution that uh, our experience is not a very good index for how we are uh, in relationship to God. So for instance, you might have days where you just do not feel like you're doing so well in the life of faith, like you are running the race poorly. And that may be true, but that does not mean uh, that you are not in Christ anymore. That is objective work that is done outside of your experience. Now that was a cr sort of crash course. I know there's a lot more we could say here, but with this sort of basic understanding, let's see if we can make a little bit of sense uh, of the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, as I mentioned before, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is difficult because it, uh, it's not anywhere explicitly stated in the Bible. So the task that we have before us is to look at the materials of the Bible as God's own self-disclosure to humanity and see what sense we can make of it. And so there's two basic uh, premises that we need to hold together when we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. Number one, scripture attests that God is one and there is no other. Okay. God is one and there is no other. There's a bunch of passages that we could look at, but the, the place to start is at the beginning, Genesis one in the beginning, God, that's it by himself. Right? So God does not, uh, well, as John Calvin put it, God is the source of all other being. He is being itself. And there is a oneness about him. This, of course, uh, was most explicitly stated in the so-called Shema uh, of Israel, their most basic confession of faith. We get this in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Is one. And the Hebrew there, actually, we could translate even more literally like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God alone. Right? There is only one. Scripture is absolutely unequivocal about that. And that's going to become very important as we think about the doctrine of the Trinity, because it's a grave error to suggest that we have three gods here, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That, according to Scripture, is a plainly unsatisfactory formulation of the doctrine. And then, of course, all the pro uh, prohibitions against idolatry all across the Hebrew scriptures are all grounded in this fundamental principle of the oneness of God. Right? Uh, he says in Isaiah 44, like, behold, I'm the one, there is no other. And we could, we could count uh, dozens and dozens, scores of other prophetic texts uh, with the same sort of idea. So on the one hand, we read the Bible, and it is absolutely clear that God is one. But here's the difficulty. 
Uh, there are also intimations of the Trinity in the Old Testament, even though it's never explicitly stated. For instance, uh, Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 26, where God is creating humanity in his own image, what's really interesting is all the verbs there are in the plural, right? So God says, let us make humankind in our image and according to our likeness. Now, I want to be absolutely clear. There are lots of ways to read this text. Uh, different Old Testament scholars will tell you different things. Not every scholar is convinced that this is an implicit reference to the Trinity. All I can tell you here is that historically, uh, in the history of Christian doctrine, most theologians have taken this as sort of a a hint um, at the triune nature of God. And in fact, one famous theologian called uh, the creation narratives uh, a chance for us to eavesdrop on the triune God as he brings a creation into existence, which may be hinted at in these plural verbs in Genesis chapter one. Uh, here again, uh, right at the very beginning of the story in Genesis chapter one, it says in the beginning was the, was God. And then in verse two, and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters, which right from the beginning, there seems to be a distinction between God and the spirit of God. Both God and yet expressed in two different personhoods, as the theology of the later church would put it. So right from the beginning, uh, and actually all throughout the Hebrew scriptures, you've got the spirit of God uh, and then being understood in some sort of distinction from God the Father. Uh, And a third example of these sort of intimations are what we call angelic theophanies. Um, A theophany is where God, who, as we'll talk about in our next talk, God who is immaterial, who is spirit, who does not have a physical body, nevertheless, from time to time throughout these stories, takes on a physical manifestation where he is visible and tangible to human beings. Uh, And what's interesting is that uh, sometimes in these theophanies, it appears like it's maybe an angel, but by the time the, the encounter is over, the biblical authors seem to understand that somehow this was God manifesting himself. A good example is uh, Jacob wrestling with God in the book of Genesis. It's said at the beginning of the wrestling match that he's wrestling with the angel of God. But then by the end, it says that he has wrestled with God himself. Uh, here again, these are mysterious passages. I'm not an Old Testament scholar. I don't presume to be an expert. But I will tell you that in the history of Christian theology, lots of theologians have seen these as sort of glimpses of the incarnate Christ, perhaps. So uh, you've got this sort of implicit, what I've called implicit Trinitarianism in the Old Testament, where nothing uh, explicit is said, but you can sort of see that you've got uh, a God who is some, in some sense, is community himself, exists in a plurality, and yet is one God. That is Implicit, but on this slide, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what some theologians have called the incipient Trinitarianism of the New Testament. It means that even though the doctrine is never laid out in sort of explicit terms, you can start seeing it sort of unfold and arise more explicitly in the New Testament. And the best example of these are Trinitarian narratives. What I mean by that is there are uh, passages in the New Testament where we see all three persons of the Trinity at work simultaneously. And this rules out an, un, uh, an, uh, an, yeah, an unsatisfactory doctrine of the Trinity that, uh, called modalism. We'll talk about that in a minute. Modalism says that there is only one God, 
who, ta- who sort of takes on three different manifestations at different times. So God, the father becomes God, the son who becomes God, the spirit. The problem with that is the new Testament is full of passages where you get the triune God working together to save human persons, right? So the, the salvific action of God is seen as uh, the work of all three persons of the Holy Spirit, uh, of the Holy Trinity uh, in unison with one another. So a good example is the baptism of Jesus, right? In Matthew chapter three, but you also find it in a couple other gospel accounts. Uh, in Matthew chapter three, right? The son is being baptized and the father speaks his approval from the heavens, from the heavenly realm. And then the spirit descends on Jesus. So here you've got uh, the triune God in action, Uh, John chapter 20, right? The end of John's gospel, right at the very end, you've got the son who understands himself as sent from the father, gifting the Holy Spirit to God's people, right? Do you see how the very shape of the narrative is triune? Uh, Paul makes a similar argument in 1 Corinthians 12, when he talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to Paul are given from the father through the Son, by the Holy Spirit, for the edification of the church. And so that's important too, because it, uh, for Paul, the life of the church is a triunely shaped life, right? So when we come to worship, the very shape of our worship ought to be triune. And actually, Pastor Chris gave you a really good example in our introduction, uh, where the shape of his prayer was triune, praying to God the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, one very interesting, uh, phenomenon that we get in the new Testament from a historical perspective is that we get Trinitarian formulae, uh, and benedictions. So there seem to be these little mini confessions of faith that date from very early on in Christian history that are triune in their shape. Uh, so for instance, baptismal formulas are like this. So think about right at the end of the great commission in Matthew chapter 28, uh, Matthew's gospel dates to sometime in the middle of the first century. Uh, which suggests that we're very, very early on in the Christian story. And Jesus says to the disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. And what comes next? Baptizing them how? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, Pauline benedictions are like this, right? At the end of 2 Corinthians, he says, uh, yeah, what does he say? Let me me just read it before, uh, instead of butchering it. Bear with me here. Second Corinthians uh, chapter 13, uh, he says this in verse 14. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, right? The grace of Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Here again for Paul, the shape of the church is triune. In the the shape of uh, the church's experience of God is triune. So uh, how might we sum this up? Well, I want to give you a quote here on this next slide by a fellow named Gregory Nazianzen, or sometimes he's known as Gregory of Nazianzus. He is writing in the fourth century, the 300s, up in Asia Minor, what is now Turkey. And he's trying to come to grips with some of this biblical data that we've been talking about. How is it that God is both one and yet existing in three persons. Well, he says it like this. The Old Testament proclaimed the Father openly, the Son more obscurely. The New, that is the New Testament, manifested the Son and suggested the deity of the Holy Spirit. Now the Spirit himself dwells among us and supplies us with a clearer demonstration of himself. 
And listen to what he says, really interesting. For it was not safe when the Godhead was not yet acknowledged plainly to proclaim the Son, nor when uh, that of the Son was yet received to to burden us further with the Holy Spirit. It was necessary that, increasing little by little, and as David says, by ascensions from glory to glory, the full splendor of the Trinity should gradually shine forth. And what Gregory is getting at here is he says, uh, or he makes a really interesting argument. Why is it that the Trinity sort of slowly unfolds across the pages of scripture and is made only clear in in the experience of the spirit in the church age? Well, Gregory makes a really, really interesting argument. He says, well, it wasn't safe for God to show us himself in all of his full glory. He said, he's kind of making an argument that we need to slowly acclimate to the triune God, because if he fully reveals his glory to us all at once, we're going to blow up. There's a really good uh, passage that illustrates this in Exodus. I think Exodus chapter 18, where Moses says, Hey God, do you know what would be really cool? And what I would like is if I could, you know, look at you, if I could see your glory and God says, "Uh, I don't, know that that's a great idea because you'll blow up. But I'll tell you what we can do. I'll run past and you can look at my hind parts, it says. You can look at my backside and even that glory will be almost too much for you to take. And it's true that across the scriptures, anytime anyone has an encounter with the living God, it is very nearly their undoing. They almost die, right? And so Gregory is taking the point that, uh, making the point that perhaps it was out of mercy that God allowed these things to unfold slowly. So how did the church take these biblical materials and shape them into a doctrine? Um, I'm very nervous to be up here. You you can't really see, but I'm sweating because it's hard to talk about the Trinity. It's hard to talk about God uh, without saying something that is deeply untrue. Uh, And so uh, to help us a little bit, I want to talk a little bit about orthodoxy and heresy because the doctrine of the Trinity took shape historically in part because there were folks trying to articulate it, but they did so in ways that were ultimately unsatisfactory. And so I want to give a definition of heresy here. Heresy is a word that is thrown around, in my opinion, a little bit too lightly, uh, particularly in certain circles or on certain theology blogs. You'll see people have a very quick trigger to uh, condemn something as a heresy, right? Uh, Usually some sort of peripheral issue uh, becomes uh, a, a question of orthodoxy and heresy. But when we're talking about orthodoxy and heresy, what do we actually mean? Now, I want to give you a definition of heresy from a 19th century German theologian by the name of Friedrich Schleiermacher. Yeah, that's a fun name to say, Schleiermacher. Now, there's something interesting about this, and there's a bit of an irony here. I'm going to give you a definition of Schleiermacher, uh, from Schleiermacher of heresy. Now, the irony is that lots of theologians actually think that Schleiermacher might be a heretic but he offers a really good definition of heresy. And I want to unpack it a little bit. Listen to what he says. Heresy is teaching that looks authentically Christian on a superficial level, but ultimately undermines Christianity's essence. Okay. It's something that looks Christian on the surface, but if you follow the teaching to its logical conclusion, it actually undermines Christianity's essence. That's a really good definition of heresy because it tells us a couple of things. Um, Number one, heresy always originates from within the church. Okay. A non-Christian teaching is not a heresy. It just simply is a non-Christian teaching. So a Buddhist teaching about something isn't heresy. It's just not Christian teaching. 
heresy originates from inside the church. And what, this helps us to understand that heretics are not trying to destroy the church. What they are trying to do is faithfully explain a Christian doctrine, but they're doing, uh, so doing it in a way that has some sort of fatal flaw that ultimately destroys the gospel. This is what Schleiermacher is talking about. So it's not as if like these heresies that we're going to meet uh, over the course of our talks together, it's not as if, like, for instance, Arius, who's a character you'll meet soon, it's not as if Arius wakes up one day and says, you know what would be great and hilarious is if I just destroyed the church and I tortured students of theology some 1,700 years later who are trying to understand Christology, uh, I think it would be really fun to produce a heretical teaching. Of course not. What Arius is trying to do is to try and understand the son's relationship to, fa- to the father. He just does so in a way that undermines Christianity's essence. So what are some of the characteristics of heresy? Number one, heresy tends to oversimplify uh, because it makes, it makes uh, more logical sense. In some ways, it's easier. Here, I'll give you a good example. Uh, classical Christian doctrine, and we'll talk about this, In a few weeks' time, classical Christian doctrine holds that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human in one person. Now, that's really hard for us to understand because we have a category for fully human and we have a category for fully God, but we don't have a category for fully human and fully God. So, as we're going to see, Christological heresies tended to choose one option or the other. Either Jesus was just a human being or Jesus is just God and not a human being. It's simpler, but it isn't true. It's not faithful to the witness of Scripture. Uh, Heresy has a tendency to accommodate. What I mean by that is it accommodates culture. Uh, As we're going to see with lots of these heresies, for example, in the Greco-Roman culture of the 3rd and 4th centuries, it was absolutely inconceivable to think of God as suffering. Right? Because that culture had been deeply influenced by Greek philosophy, which taught that God, uh, this is clearly, this is uh, most obviously from Aristotle, but other Greek thinkers, that God is an unmoved mover. He exists in perfect tranquility. He can't feel anything. If he felt something, he wouldn't be God. And so in that cultural context, some Christians said, well, man, uh, our doctrine of God is going to have a hard time appealing to these Greco-Roman people. So why don't we just sort of suggest that God doesn't really feel pain? It was just the human Jesus who felt pain. And it tends to accommodate rational norms. This is true, especially of the doctrine of the Trinity. I've already mentioned how it can be very hard to talk about the Trinity in ways that seem rationally coherent. Uh, Because one plus one plus one equals three. It doesn't equal one. And as we're going to see, some... Uh, early theologians said, man, well, wouldn't it make more sense to talk about three gods rather than one God and three persons? Well, perhaps it would on one level, but again, it isn't faithful to the God's self-disclosure in scripture. So what were some of these heresies, these doctrines of the Trinity that were deemed inadequate or uh, unsatisfactory in some way? There's a few Uh, one is Arianism. Now this is primarily a Christological heresy. So I'll spend more time later when we talk about Christology, but this is an adoptionistic heresy. What this means is that Jesus isn't really eternally God in the same way that God the Father is. Arius taught that Jesus is a creature who, uh, a really impressive creature, the most impressive creature that God has ever made, uh, who uh, gets adopted into the triune God at his baptism. The problem here though 
uh, as Orthodox theologians would argue, is that this makes the son subordinate to the father. They're not God in the same way. One is sort of adopted as God. Uh, whereas the scriptures seem to teach that Jesus is God from eternity. The fancy, the fancy word for this is the pre-existence of the son. You see this in John 1 and in Colossians 1 and elsewhere in the New Testament that Jesus has been, uh, well, the son of God has been God from the very beginning, from, from eternity past. Another very common early Trinitarian heresy is a view called modalism. And this is the view that uh, there's only one God who exists in three different modes, right? So uh, when he's creating the world, uh, God is in God the Father mode. And then when he's saving the world, he's in Jesus mode. And then when he is sustaining the church uh, and sustaining his redeemed creation, he's in spirit mode. But he is never God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit at the same time. Now, uh, again, Orthodox theologians deemed this inadequate for a couple of reasons. Number one, it just doesn't make sense with a lot of the narratives that we get, those Trinitarian narratives in the New Testament. So for instance, if it is true that God the Father in the incarnation becomes God the Son and God the Father no longer exists, then who is Jesus praying to all the time? And that's one question the Orthodox theologians raised. Who's he praying to? Right? There seems to be this sort of internal relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit where they can communicate with one another, which suggests that they must all exist all the time, <laughs> right? Uh, another reason this view falls apart is because Orthodox theologians came to see that anytime you speak about God doing anything, you have to speak about the triune God doing all those things. So it does not work to say God the Father was responsible for creation, God the Son was responsible for redemption, and God the Spirit, say, is responsible for sanctification. Because all of those works are the works of the triune God. Creation's a good example. We've got God the Father. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But what does verse 2 say? The Spirit of, the God, the Spirit of God is right there in the work of creation. And then we find out later in the New Testament, John 1, Colossians 1, John 1, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was uh, with God, and the Word was God. Uh, and through him, all things were made, and nothing that has been made was made apart from him. Now, that's very torturous grammar and syntax, but what's being said here is that Jesus Christ is the agent and the means of creation, the Son. So the work of creation is the work of Father, Son, and Spirit. The work of redemption is the work of Father, Son, and Spirit. And the work of sanctification is the work of Father, Son, and Spirit. Another view that's very common uh, as early uh, Trinitarian theology is being hammered out is a view called partialism. This is the view uh, that essentially uh, God is one, but he consists of three component parts. So the Father is part of God, the Son is part of God, the Spirit is part of God. Um, I don't know, like... Um, Chris will probably get this, and some of you, if you're of a certain age, when I was growing up, uh, one of my favorite TV shows was the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. And when uh, Chris and I were in college, we discovered a Super Nintendo, and we got a Power Rangers game, and we spent, oh, many, many... I've played that game as many hours as I have uh, maybe researching Trinitarian theology. And uh, in Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, all the, when it come, comes time to fight a big bad guy, they combine their powers and they create this huge sort of mega machine that fights. And it's made up of all these component parts. And sometimes Christians sort of think of God in that way. 
And perhaps we don't do it intentionally. Uh, but for instance, when we talk about the God part uh, or the Jesus part or this Holy Spirit part of God, um, it's not actually very good language to speak about God because uh, it's not as if they're each a slice of the Godhead. They are each fully and completely God existing in three persons. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Uh, another early Trinitarian heresy that was sort of an in, uh, inadequate articulation of this doctrine is tritheism. And this is exactly what it sounds like. Tritheism is the view that it's not one God who exists in three persons. It is just three separate gods, right? That there is um, God, the father, there's God, the son, God, the spirit. They're all three distinct uh, entities and they are each God, but not uh, sharing a the identical divine substance. There's just three separate gods. So for instance, uh, this is what makes sort of inter-religious dialogue with Muslim theologians very difficult in the history of theology. And there's lots of examples of this going way back to the Middle Ages, where you've got Christians and Muslims trying to hash out this question. And Muslims just can't get past the Trinity because they see it as tritheism, as polytheism. But as Orthodox theologians have said, it's absolutely not what Christians believe. We believe there is one God who exists in three persons, the triune God. Uh Another uh, Trinitarian belief that was deemed inadequate is a view called subordinationism. This takes a different, a couple different forms historically, monarchianism or Unitarianism. This is the view uh, that God exists in a hierarchy. So there is a triune God, but God the Father is at the top, and then God the Son is subordinate to God the Father. There's a hierarchy, and then way down usually, uh, like the unwanted stepchild of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we have an implicit uh, subordinationism going on even in our churches where we do believe in the Holy Spirit on paper, but uh, the Holy Spirit doesn't really do much in our lives and in our theology. In a few weeks time, I'll talk about the Holy Spirit in depth and we'll talk about that issue. But any view of the Trinity that suggests that there's some sort of rank of command um, is an inadequate understanding of the Trinity because the Bible presents the triune God working in perfect harmony all the time. And it is true that while um, we might speak of what theologians call a functional subordinism, subordinationism, which is the idea that Jesus willingly submits himself to the will of the Father. You see this all throughout the Gospels. But he does this willingly. He does not do this because he is somehow intrinsically inferior to the Father. Right? He willingly subordinates himself. Now, I mentioned, uh, kind of moving on here, that the word Trinity doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. Right? Uh, and so I've tried to make the case that it is a thoroughly biblical doctrine, but the word Trinity never shows up, right? So where do we get it? Where do we get that word? Well, it all goes back to this guy here, Tertullian of Carthage, pictured here on your slide. He was a theologian working in North Africa, what is now sort of Tunisia, Algeria, in the third century, so very, very early days in the 200s. And he's looking at all this data, and he's looking... Uh, at, the, at the scriptures, he's searching the scriptures, and he is also looking at all these views that are circulating about the Trinity, which sort of appear right on the surface, but if you follow their conclusions, they show themselves to be really dangerous or destructive ideas. And so he is trying his very best to create some vocabulary that helps us talk about the Trinity coherently. And as we're going to see, this vocabulary is not actually perfect, but it's the best we've got. Uh, I've already quoted Augustine from his book on the Trinity. And in the introduction to that book, he says, when it comes to the Trinity, 
We don't use the words we use because they're perfect. We use them because we have to say something rather than nothing. So any language we use about the Trinity is going to be inherently uh, limited, but that doesn't mean we can't speak truthfully. So he invented the word in Latin, Trinitas, where we get our word Trinity, of course. And it's a combination of three and one together, triune, triune, Trinitas, three and one together. He, um, in the Greek speaking church, uh, which is a long story for another day. But essentially, uh, the church had uh, split right down the middle of the Roman Empire, where in the eastern half of the empire, those theologians were working and thinking in Greek. And in the west half, they were working and thinking in Latin. And that caused a ton of problems as we tried to hash out the use of all these terms and what they mean. That's also a story for another day. It's beyond the scope of what we have here. But in the Greek... Um, the word that had been being used to describe the persons of the Trinity was this word hypostasis, hypostasis. And what that word means in Greek roughly is sort of an individually existing and acting subject. Uh, maybe put it this way, a thing that can perform verbs, right? Can perform active verbs, uh, personal verbs. And so uh, Tertullian is taking that language and he's trying to find uh, a Latin equivalent, which proved really difficult, actually. But the word he settled on is persona, persona, uh, which we translate into English as person, the three persons of the trinities. Uh, but we also use this word, uh, this is also an English word, a persona, which is an act that someone puts on. And this is really difficult uh, because the word persona in Latin originally meant the mask that an actor wears in a play. Uh, in ancient plays, right, uh, there were no women actors. There were only men. So they had to play multiple roles, and men also had to play women's parts. So that to do that, they would put on a mask. And he says, uh, well, how about we use this word to talk about the persons of the Trinity? Now, it may strike you that that's not perfect because it seems to suggest some kind of modalism, right, where the God the Father wears the God the Father mask, then he changes into the Son mask, then he changes into the Spirit mask. That's not quite what Tertullian is getting at, but it does show some of the difficulties of speaking about the Trinity. All he means is that we've got three personas, three different characters, if we can put it that way. Uh, one God, three persons. Uh, okay, more technical Greek and Latin work here. I apologize when you get into theology there is so much Latin and Greek, so I'll try to make it as clear as I can. The word that had been used in the Greek-speaking world, a very important word that's going to come up again and again in our talks, actually, is the word usia or usia. It's a Greek word that means substance or the essence of a thing. Uh, it, it denotes um, it denotes what it, that that substance or essence that makes a thing what it is uh, is maybe the best way we could translate it. Uh, Tertullian took that word and he translated it as substantius, substance, the thing that makes a thing what it is. Why this word became important is because he's trying to say, listen, we have three persons who are distinguished from one another by the relationship, right? The father is the father and not the son and not the spirit. The spirit is the spirit and not the son and not the father. And the son is the son, but not the father and not the spirit. So what makes them different is their person, their personhood. But what is it that they share in common? And this is where the, the concept of usia or substantia becomes very important. 
they all share one divine substance, one divine essence, one divine usia. It is, uh, for lack of a better term, their godness, right? So what Tertullian is saying here is we've got one God, one godness. They all share identically in the divine essence, but they are only distinguished by their personhood. So the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they are all divine in exactly the same way, but they are exist as three different persons. Uh, homo usia versus uh, homo usia. Uh, I'm not going to talk about that here. I'm going to talk about it in a couple weeks when we talk about Christology. Uh, so I'm going to keep you on the edge of your seat for a couple weeks. You're going to be thinking, what is the difference between homo usia and homo usia? Uh, but I'm a master of suspense, so I'm going to keep you hanging. Okay, what did this actually look like when it came time for the church to translate this into a doctrine that we could confess and live by? Uh, well, a good example is by looking uh, at our creeds. I'm going to look here at the Nicene Creed. And I want you to notice that the shape of the creed itself is triune. Right? There's a confession of God the Father, a confession of God the Son, and a confession of God the Spirit. I believe in one God, the creed says, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and all things visible and invisible. Point two, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. Uh, again, that word begotten is very, very important. I'll unpack it more when we talk about Christology more explicitly. But the word begotten uh, is used in distinction between the word uh, uh, used in distinction from the word made. So the creed says that he's begotten, not made. This means that he shares the divine essence. Uh, if I can put it very, very crudely, he consists of the same stuff as God the Father in terms of a divine essence. So we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. Very important here. This is an articulation of the eternal preexistence of the Son. The Son has always been, right? Uh, he does not come into existence at any point, as some early theologians taught. Uh, and he is not a creature of the Father. He is eternal with the Father. God of God, light from light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. I'll talk more about that when we talk about Christology. Being of one substance, homo usius. Uh, again, I'll talk about that further in a few weeks' time. Of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. And here's the problem. Uh, we're going to talk about this more when we talk about pneumatology, which is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that in about a month. Uh, here's the problem. The Holy Spirit... Uh, yeah, it sort of gets a short shrift, uh, especially in early versions of the creed, but we skipped over some material and then we come to the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified and who spoke by the prophets. This is really important too, because it says that the Spirit is entitled to the same worship and honor as the Father and the Son. So one of the ways that we see Trinitarian grammar, if I can put it that way, taking shape in the way the church speaks is they came to conclude that we can worship the Father, we can worship the Son, we can worship the Holy Spirit uh, all in the same way because they are all fully God. They share one divine essence, one divine substance. 
Here's the Athanasian Creed. This is uh, a little bit later, 5th century, early 6th century. Listen to this. The Catholic faith, and they don't mean Roman Catholic here. This is Catholic with a lowercase c. All that this means is the universal faith. So this is what Christians everywhere believe, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons. That means we're not confusing them, right? Uh, the Father's not the Son, the Son's not the Spirit, Spirit's not the Father, that sort of thing. Nor dividing the essence, so they all share one divine substantia, one divine essence. For there is one person of the Father, another person of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost is all one. Listen to this. The glory is equal. The majesty is co-eternal, right? So they've always existed together. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Ghost. So what you can say of the Father, you can say of the Son, you can say of the Holy Ghost. Right? The Father's uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Ghost is uncreated, the Father unlimited, the Son unlimited, uh, and the Holy Ghost unlimited. You're getting the idea, right? I think you're picking up on it. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Ghost is eternal. And yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal. So likewise, the Father's the Almighty, the Son's the Almighty, the Holy Ghost is the Almighty, and yet there are not three Almighties, but one Almighty. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Ghost is God, and yet there are not three gods, but one God. And in this Trinity, none is before or after another, none is greater or less than another, but uh, the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal, so that in all things... As aforesaid, as we said before, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. And therefore, that will be saved. Let him think thus of the Trinity. You might wonder why this creed is written in such a cumbersome and redundant style. But what I want you to understand is that there were all kinds of ideas circulating about the Trinity that seemed right, but were actually really problematic. I've introduced you just to a few of them. And so you'll notice that the creeds are often written in this style because they have to be very, very clear and they have to be very, very careful to rule out heresies without naming them, right? Uh, the, the fathers of the church are very careful not to name heresies because it's one way of giving publicity to thoughts that they find ter uh, that are problematic or even very dangerous for the church. So if you read between the lines, you can see all kinds of heresies being ruled out. That's why they have to write in this style. And so you'll get as they hammer home again and again and again, the father, the son, the spirit, they are God. They share divine essence. They are three separate persons who share divine essence, and they are all entitled to the same glory and majesty and worship, and they have always existed together. And the, and the creed, I want to point out here, ends on a note of worship. And one of the things I want us to take away here is that the Trinity is not a math equation to be solved. It is a mystery to be worshiped. Now, we've just spent an hour trying to think and talk about the Trinity. So uh, I am not saying that you just throw up your hands and you say, oh, the Trinity, what a mystery. Who can understand it? That's true. But God has revealed himself to us as triune, which means that we need to do the work of thinking and worshiping and praising God as he is triune, because this is who God is in his essence. So I just want to sum things up this way. Here's a good summary. If you take nothing else away, let's put it like this. The Trinity 
is the one God, means that uh, consisting of one divine substantia, one divine usia, one divine uh, God stuff, to put it very, very crassly. The Trinity is the one God existing in three persons, right? or persona uh, or hypostasis, uh, an individual acting subject, right? So the Trinity is one God existing in three persons. This has often been um, articulated here by this very ancient diagram uh, that dates uh, to the early days of the church before they had Microsoft Word and then more Microsoft Paint and then more advanced uh, <laughs> Yeah, more advanced um, graphic design programs to make uh, diagrams. But this is how they expressed it. Uh, look at this uh, diagram on your slide here. At the top, you've got the father, pater, bottom left, phileus, the son, uh, spiritus sanctus, bottom right. That's the Holy Spirit. And this diagram actually expresses what we've been talking about for an hour. You can see uh, pater non est. That means is not. So the pater is not the spirit. The spirit is not the son. The son is not the father. So they are distinguished because of their relationships to one another. But then you've got a little line going to the middle. Est is, and in the middle, God. Father is God. Son is God. Spirit is God. But father's not the son. Son's not the spirit. Spirit's not the father. Which means that all three persons of the Trinity are consubstantial. That's the fancy theological word you'll sometimes see. Consubstantial, or sometimes you'll see the language of co-essential, meaning they all share the same divine essence, which means that they are co-equal. There is no hierarchy within the Trinity. Now, one is not more God than the other persons. They are co-eternal. They have always been there from the beginning. Scripture is very clear about this. And they are all omnipotent because they all share the divine essence. And I want to close on a note here that I'd like maybe for us to think about this week. Uh, what practical difference does the doctrine of the Trinity make? That's not an easy question to answer. Um, there's lots I could say here, uh, but our time constraints are such that I want to close on this one point. I want to introduce you to a doctrine called perichoresis. Perichoresis. It's a Greek word. Uh, that is taken actually from the world of dance, which is kind of uh, weird and makes me uncomfortable because dancing is my least favorite thing in the world. I haven't danced since my wedding day. Uh, and Lord willing, if I can continue in the faith, I'll never dance again. But this word perichoresis means, uh, it means sort of moving in and out and in unison and in harmony and in rhythm like you do in a dance. And Greek theologians said that the Holy Spirit exists uh, in a state of perichoresis, right? Uh, this sort of divine dance where they are perfectly in harmony. And perichoresis also means a kind of mutual indwelling. And this is sort of what Jesus is talking about in John 14 when he says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Meaning that, uh, and he, he says elsewhere in John, actually, he says, Father, uh, now's the time to glorify yourself with the glory that you and I shared before the world began. Meaning that God, in his essence, the essence of who God is, is a community of mutual delight and love and overflowing joy. 
where the, the persons are indwelling with one another, which is a beautiful image that God in his essence is community. And that should give us something to think about uh, when scripture says that we are created in the image of the triune God. One of the things that means is that you and I, we are, commun- we are created for community. We are, commun- we are created for mutual delight and joy and love and just, uh, yeah, just overflowing uh, blessing with one another. And when Jesus says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, and then he turns around and he says to his disciples, abide in me. What we have here is the triune God inviting us into this relationship of love and joy and blessing and peace. So I want you to think about that this week. Uh, when we say that we are in relationship with God, we are relating to the triune God. And so on one level, we can talk about salvation as being invited into the life of the triune God. And that is a lot more exciting than some of the ways I think we normally think about salvation. So what difference does it mean to be in Christ? It means to be invited in to the mutual delight of the triune God. And that story is going to play out over the rest of our talks together. See you next week.